My name is Ron Toller. Welcome to Brothers and Sisters Like These, a series of stories presented by warriors of all ages, representing men and women alike who share images of war in their recollections. Brothers and Sisters Like These is a veterans writing group featuring members who share stories and poems with each other and the public around our state as part of their healing. This group is part of the North Carolina Veterans Writing Alliance Foundation. Each of these groups has the goal of supporting veterans as they heal from their war experience. There is a house in New Orleans I'm Michael Ireland. I was in Vietnam for 19 months. The first year was with the 101st Airborne Division, and the second six months was with Special Forces. I had stayed in the service after Vietnam and retired at 20 years as a major. So these are basically my stories of Vietnam. I will probably be doing other podcasts that will carry this story on afterwards. So let's get to it. The first one is called Service. You took us fresh from being children. You took away everything we had known. You gave us a new family with brothers and sisters. You made us different and gave us a will to protect and defend. You made us warriors, one and all. You placed us in harm's way and asked impossible things of us. We sacrificed, adapted, overcame, and delivered. And when you were done, you tried to dismantle the warriors you had forged. You took away everything, our new life, our brothers and sisters. You told us one and all, thank you for your service. You put us back into the world you had taken from us, but it was different. We were different. And then it was done, but not forgotten. My first 30 days in Vietnam, after flying halfway around the world and being dropped into an environment that seemed to embrace chaos, we were bused to the 90th Replacement Battalion, located at Benoit, which was part of, of Long Ben Logistical Support Area, located 33 kilometers east of Saigon, and a first stop for newly arrived U.S. Army personnel. Long Ben was posted, was reported to have dental clinics, large restaurants, snack bars, special service craft shops, post exchanges, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, basketball and tennis courts, a golf driving range, University of Maryland extension classes, bowling alleys, nightclubs with live music, laundry services, and a massage parlor. Since we were newbies, we saw none of this. For those of us who had already had orders assigning us to a permanent unit, this was just a short layover. 
after a few days to complete in processing. Those of us with orders for the 101st Airborne Division boarded a C-130. We flew up country to Camp Eagle, located in Nikor, seven kilometers southeast of the city of Wei and nine kilometers west of Fubai Combat Base. I reported into the 320th Artillery Battalion and was issued a weapon, ammunition, and fuel gear. I was then told to be ready at 7 a.m. to accompany the battalion commander for the next few days on the inspection tour of the battalion, which was spread throughout I-Corps. The next morning, I met up with the battalion commander, and we drove to the helipad. Sitting on the pad was a huge loach, which was a single-engine helicopter with four-bladed main rotors used for transporting up to five people plus pilot. It also was used for escort, attack missions, and observations. We flew over villages, rice paddies, mountains, plains, rivers, bays, and inlets of the South China Sea. You could glimpse sometimes the grandeur and the beauty of a past Vietnam. For the most part, we saw the devastation and destruction that we had inflicted on this land and its <clears throat> there were white dead areas that had been treated with Agent Orange everywhere. There were bombs and artillery craters, most of them filled with water. There were abandoned buildings and villages which had been seen in the ravages of war. The only area that seemed to be pristine were the beaches in the South China Sea. I guess it's hard to screw up water and sand. We went up every unit we went to every unit in the battalion, and at the end of the third day, I was told to be ready to deploy the following day. The next day, I was literally dropped into an Army of the Republic of Vietnam mechanized unit. It was just me, an American military advisor, an Australian military advisor, and a whole bunch of Vietnamese troops. I had been in country a little over 10 days, and this was now my reality check and wake-up call. The first night, I curled up next to one of the track vehicles, and they had been asleep about an hour when I woke up to the most awful noise that I couldn't immediately identify. My first thoughts were we were under attack. I finally got my head around of what was going on, and it turned out that one of the Vietnamese sentries decided he was bored and turned on a radio with Vietnamese music. So much for noise discipline. The music was loud, twangy, and when you added vocals, it sounded like someone was killing a cat. Nobody seemed upset at this, so I went back to sleep as best I could. I spent the next 18 days learning about Vietnamese music, culture, food, and their military. I had my first Vietnamese food, which was fish and noodles, and quickly learned to be careful because the fish had metal particles in it. The reason for this was the way they fished. Their field expedient method for fishing was to use a hand grenade, then scooped up the fish as they floated to the surface. The only normal things were the sunrises and sunsets, which were absolutely beautiful. During these 18, 18 days, Christmas and New Year's, 1968 came and went. Those two days were very hard for me as I was really homesick and very lonely. The 
the one thing I will never forget was how beautiful the night skies were because there was no light pollution. There was no light pollution. The night was aglow with stars and the Milky Ways and the galaxies from horizon to horizon. On the 18th day, the battalion commander swooped in in his loach, placed my ass up, and dropped me in Delta Company, second of the 502 Infantry, 101st Airborne Division. This was my home and my family for the next seven months. This one's called Friendly Fire. We have been sweeping the mountains west of Way for the last 11 days. We were so far out, our only artillery supports were eight-inch guns and sometimes 175s. We were moving along a ridge line coming out of the mountains when we, when we made contact. This lasted about 20 minutes, and then everything was quiet. The company commander decided to roll off the ridge line and pursue these individuals we had just been in contact with. We were following a trail that looped back and forth down the side of the mountain. CO wanted to prep the valley and we were getting ready to slide into and see if we couldn't stop or slow down the people we were tracking. Because of the AH batteries located, this put us a short distance off the gun target line. We were still in a safe zone because we were moving vertically and not horizontally. The trail looped back on itself as we descended, which spread us out in a loose horseshoe configuration. As we moved, I adjusted fire using two guns until it was where the seal wanted it. I then called for battery fire. It confirmed firing and added it, added except two late rounds. The next thing we knew, the world erupted around us as two eight-inch rounds landed in the middle of that horseshoe. There was noise, screaming, and confusion. I remember screaming into the radio to cease fire. The company in front of me and the one behind me were wounded. Tears were streaming down my face, and I remember thinking what I had done wrong. We called for a medevac and waited for what seemed to be an eternity. But in reality, it was only less than five minutes. Because we were on the side of a mountain, there was no place to land. The next thing we knew, this Huey, which was not a medevac, came slowly into the side of the mountain and placed the leading edge of its skids against the hill and held that position while we loaded the most critically wounded. It, he didn't do this one time. He kept coming back until all of the wounded and dead were evacuated. He carried out nine wounded and seven dead. As we resumed our mission, we were told that the investigation had found that two guns had been laid wrong in the battery. This exonerated me, but it didn't make me feel any better. As the artillery had made a mistake, and I was the artillery representative on the ground, we spent one more night out, which meant I had to plot defensive fire positions. Normally, I would fire one or two air bursts, white phosphorus, or high explosive rounds to check the locations. This night, I just plotted them and wasn't going to fire them until the artillery battalion commander intervened and told me I was to fire in every one I had plotted. That was one of the hardest things I ever did as an FO. It was even harder on the unit, but nobody said anything. They just hunkered down and got a little lower to the ground. No one spoke of our losses that day. The second and last time I cried in country. 
After eight months in the field as, as a forward observer, I became the executive officer of a 105 battery. We were on a fire base north of Wade, just off Highway 1. Beautiful views, but piss-poor infrastructure. The gun positions were haphazardly placed around a small hill, and what bunkers there were were filthy and rat-infested. And to top it off, we had just been told that this was going to be our home until after the monsoon season. The old man was going to Hawaii on RR and just left. I decided to do something about our deplorable working and living conditions. I displaced the battery to a rearm refueling pad and got the CBs who had a compound about three miles from the road from us to bring a dozer up and knock off the top of the hill. They also lent us a five-ton truck to haul the supplies we would need and rebuild the gun positions. Just prior to this time, we had found a stray puppy, which was about two months old, and adopted it. One day, I sent a couple of the guys with a five-ton to pick up some materials at the CB compound. Someone decided he was going to take the puppy, and as they pulled out, they were standing in the back of the five-ton, up against the cab, and with the puppy on the roof. As they started down the hill, the driver put on the brakes, and the puppy tumbled from the roof of the cab onto the hood and then onto the ground. The fall broke the, broke the puppy's neck, and it died instantly. This was the second and last time I cried in country. This one's called We Died in Vietnam, or We All Died in Vietnam. When you're a 20-year-old, you think you are invincible and can do anything. You have dreams, aspirations, and expectations all the time in the world to fulfill and accomplish them. When our country called us, we answered that call. For most of us, serving in the military and going off to war were not one of our dreams or aspirations. But we were invincible and we could do anything. This attitude only lasted till our first firefight. We faced on our we faced our own mortality. Our dreams, aspirations, and expectations of what we thought our lives were going to be died in that far off country. The only thing we had to hang on to were our memories of what had been. The next thing we lost was our morality, moral virginity. We found ourselves doing things we could never have managed to, just to survive and take care of each other. We were not fighting for God and country. We were fighting to save ourselves. With this new reality came the start of the insidious psychological wounds of war that had been part of, the, of us for the last 50 years. They are festering wounds that we all carry in some form or fashion. We have carried this burden for so long that it has become part of who we are, yet we yearn for something more. Only time will tell. This one is called Returning to the Real World. When I was in Vietnam, I'd heard it once. If I'd heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. When I get back to the real world, I'm going to. And in the, the real world was a magical place that held all our lives, dreams, and expectations. It is where we had grown up and lived our lives for our first 20 years. After a year in a beautiful, deadly country, and if you were lucky, you returned to the really to the real world that supposedly held all your loves, dreams, and expectations. 
We returned, but we did not belong. The real world was our loves, dreams, and expectations seemed to have moved on without us. In reality, we had changed so many ways that we were the ones out of step. We were not 20 years old anymore, but much, much older. We had seen and done too much. We cannot relate our feel or feel comfortable in our families or with our four friends. We tried to adapt and fit in. It was like trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. If the truth be known, we were not even comfortable in our own skins. We have tried over the course of our lives to love and recapture our dreams, only to fall short. It's like being on a merry-go-round that goes around and around and around. And no matter how we try, we cannot get off or grab that magical brass ring. This one is called Wounds of War. When we answered our country's call to war, the majority of us were 18 to 22, and had never been further than 200 miles from where we grew up. Most of us were idealistic and apprehensive, which lasted maybe 30 days until we had our first firefight. We lived our time and country day to day, and with no exceptions of living or dying in a far-off country. No one paid close attention to the days, weeks, and months as they slipped by. To do so would drive you crazy or maybe jinx you. The last 30 days when you became a short-timer, with the hardest as your thoughts were consumed with the possibilities of living or dying. We did what we had to do to survive and take care of each other. We saw things we should not have seen, and we did things because we had to. We lost a lot of brothers, and we're left with only a heartache and a lingering answering, answered question, why did I survive? We survived and made it back to the real world with no understanding of the wounds of war we carried with us. We tried to put the war behind us if, if it wasn't to be. <clears throat> we tried to re-enter society, but some people felt we had done something wrong and we were very... And they were very vocal about it. This just added to our disassociation. We initially thought that the real world had changed, and it slowly dawned on us that we had changed and could not go back to our dream of the way it was. When we came home, the things we were dealing with had even been defined or given a name. No one knew what to do with us or for us. We are now dealing with the emotions and feelings no 20-year-old is equipped to handle. Because we are still warriors, so we hunkered down and did our best to keep the wounds of war in check. 50-plus years later, we are still trying. The only thing we can say for certainty is we survived, but at what cost? Most of us are on our second or third marriage, estranged from our families and friends, living one day Today, as we did as long ago, we are just now learning we'll still have the ability within us to heal ourselves. We have to want to and to be willing to work for it. The healing starts when we forgive ourselves and start to love ourselves unconditionally. We must bear our wounds of war to the light of day. Let the feeling of love carry away the burden we have 
lived with for the past 50 plus years. We are still warriors. We can do this. This one is called Love After Sacrifice. You voluntarily or involuntarily gave your life to the military to do with as it saw fit. Some died and some of us lived. For those that lived, we went on to went on after Vietnam. We were left with memories and lingering questions. Why did I live with my brother when my brothers died? You can let that question consume you or ask this question. Was I spirit for another purpose? I choose to believe in order to fulfill the other purpose of destiny. Until that purpose or destiny is disclosed to is disclosed to me. I can only live in a manner that honors those brothers who died. Your life has meaning and purpose. Do not waste it or dishonor it. That's all my readings for this point. And I hope to have you listen in on my further uh, times doing this. Thank you very much. Hard times coming home now Can't get your feet on the ground Lots of issues and no one wants you around Barely sleeping and you can't get through To the VA on the phone No one's hiring and no one wants to give you a loan And everyone else is carrying on Just like they've always done before You've been home for a couple of years now, buddy, but you're still fighting the war. Yes, uh, my name is David Rafith. I uh, was in the Marine Corps, uh, served in Vietnam from May of 1967 to June of 1968. I was a trained sniper attached to uh, Marine Headquarters, 4th Marine uh, Regiment. Uh, in January of, of 2018, I was asked to join a writer's group that was forming at the VA hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was uh, before that it uh, formally became known as brothers and sisters like these. And the purpose was to help uh, veterans from Vietnam suffering from various stages of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, learning how to write and, and share uh, our experiences with uh, the other people in the group uh, would hopefully help in the in a healing process. And and I can just uh, say that uh, the, the folks in there were turned out to be terrific men. And as we progressed, uh, they, they became absolutely wonderful writers, sharing their experiences that. A lot of us has never talked about for 50 years. So I've got some pieces here that I'd like to read. And uh, I laid it out covering the um, first days of the uncertainty of, uh, of landing in country and the all of it all. And then the second uh, middle pieces of what it was to be in combat in Vietnam. And then, of course, uh, the best piece was uh, the last, the uh, joy and exhilaration of finally leaving it. My first piece is titled, First Day in Country. My memories of the first landing in Vietnam are spread over several days. We spent a long night flight from Marine El Toro Base 
to a large base in Okinawa. There were about 140 of us, including the last-minute arrival of two Marines in handcuffs. No one asked why. We disembarked to a nondescript place, dragging everything we owned, following like sheep the guy in front to wherever. We were to leave behind all our non-essential gear. Supposedly, we would retrieve it 13 months later. I subconsciously wondered who would get my stuff if my luck ran out. Less than 24 hours later, our billet number was called. Grab your gear and follow the sergeant out to the flight line. You're going south. Nobody was stupid enough to ask where south was. We all were going to the same place. Our ride was a huge C-130 cargo plane, one without no seats. We marched in like cattle, sitting on the floor, trying to get comfortable, no smoking, not much chatter, just waiting out the ride, looking dazed. Five and a half hours later, on a slow taxi, the big ramp came down halfway. The heat and humidity rushed in like dragon's breath. We were here, in country, the Nam, the Nang. The sights, sounds, and smells were almost too much to comprehend. Trucks, jeeps, people, noise, jets roaring overhead, and apparent confusion everywhere. And there were all these diesel fumes all around, coming from every moving vehicle. So pungent that even now, they remind me of that day. We found processing, collected our M14s and web gear. Sold, I swear, John Wayne Ward in the movie The Sands of Iwo Jima. All of the snipers that had trained together were split up. Ordered to strange-sounding places we never heard of. Joe and I were to head up country. Each regiment had a platoon of snipers assigned to it. We were attached to headquarters company of the 4th Marine Regiment. That the office, Pogue, thought was somewhere up around Camp Evans. We were dumbfounded. Here we were, two new guys, told to find our outwear somewhere up in Indian country on our own. We had no idea. Go out to the LZ and hitch a ride on the chopper going north, the E-4 said. How we got there is a foggy memory, but we did. We waited outside an operation hut lounging on a sandbag bumper, waiting for someone to tell us to load up. Two days later, Joe and I were still waiting. Back to transit at night, out to the LZ in the morning. Smoking cigarette after cigarette, watching the greatest air show in the busiest world airport in the world. Jet jockeys from all branches taxied by. Canopies up, oxygen mask dangling, looking so cool and casual. The third day, we start thinking that maybe we could sit out half the war doing this. Wandering around the transit area, hanging out the chow hall, blending in, looking like we knew what we were doing. Who would care? Nobody here knew who we were. Did they know up, up north who we were or where we were? But then we were just too new to it all. Two new guys who had no salt on us yet. We had yet to figure out the system and didn't yet realize how insignificant we were to the grand scheme of things. A day or two later, a door gunner on an old CH-53 yelled for us to hop on. We were going up country. The pilot shouted at us, at us over the turbine's roar. If we take fire, go ahead and shoot back. 
holy cow, take fire, shoot back. Reality just set in. An hour later, we were there, a flat spot of nowhere scraped clean of vegetation. Bob wire and sandbag bunkers circled a mass of olive drab tents. We were directed to down there somewhere by the Marine we asked. Heat and humidity were wearing us down by the time we find, found our hooch. A lone Marine lay on a rack reading a Playboy. His head was bandaged and he was smoking a cigarette. Where is everybody, I asked. Well, most of them are out in the bush. Haven't seen half of them in a month or so. What happened to you again, I asked. I got shot in the head last week. And so it began. Thirteen months of dirt, mosquitoes, jungle rot, snakes, ungodly hygiene, leeches, killing, diarrhea, monsoon rains, fear, camaraderie, death, relentless humidity, and chaos. All in a backdrop of incredible multi-shaded green beauty. The next piece I, I wrote is entitled The Night They Tried to Kill Us. It was January 1968. <clears throat> we were platoon of snipers attached to the 4th Marines at a dismal place called Camp Carroll. When the monsoons deeds a bit, you could see North Vietnam from the watchtower. The call came down for six teams of snipers to saddle up and hump up to the LZ. Twelve of us was an unusual request. Something was up. Sergeant Dan was the honcho and went up to HQ to get the scoop. A grunt company, Mike, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, was on a hillside along Highway 9 and was seeing movement out farther than their little M16s could reach. Six shooters and six spotters seemed like overkill to us. Two days at most, pack minimal travel light. There would be officers, so flak jackets and helmets were required. We usually didn't wear them. The slicks were waiting when we reached the LZ. They'd lifted off in a swirling cloud of red dust. Soon the blades pitched and the turbines slowed. We were going in. <clears throat> the first bird started taking ground fire. He rose up and pitched the right. Our bird did the same. Back at Camp Carroll, we trudged to our hooches. Not today, we thought. Half hour later, E6 came in, saddle up. You're going back in. This time, we took more ammo. We unloaded just as the pilot pulled up. We were in some waist-high grass, surrounded by a perimeter of nervous Marines. Skipper's up on top. This way, the E4 said. The hill was steep enough to give us trouble. Dusk was approaching. The CEO was a Mustang, several days growth, cigar and all. He wanted us to set in on the left steep side of the hill where they had the sightings. I hooked up with two Marines that didn't look old enough to have driver's licenses. My partner had the, the uh, sniper rifle and he moved down the line. They had half-assed hole dug that wouldn't fit me. Any wire strung, I asked. No, we all dug in first. No listening posts, no claimers to do their deadly damage. Just bushes out front. We were on a 75% watch, so I took the first. 
I smoked my last cigarette of the day and watched the blackness surrounding, waiting, listening for the night sounds that would mean danger. Later, I started hearing a noise, barely audible, like croaking frogs. My watch was over. I asked my relief what that was. Sounds like frogs, he said. Good night. I rolled on my side, hugging my M14. Sometime later, I was awakened by a gentle nudge and a shaky voice. Get up. We're surrounded. Wide awake. No cobwebs. What? How? I asked. It wasn't frogs. They must have been moving around the hill. I placed all my magazines in front of me, straightened the pins on my grenades, waiting for them to start probing the lines. You could hear them now, moving, talking low, trying to find the line where the killing would start. I told the two to slip on their bayonets. <clears throat> Ten yards away, I heard Butch yell, they're right in front of me. A grenade, <clears throat> a burst of lead, then pops. Then it hit the fan. Muzzle flashes both ways, vegetation being shredded, dirt splattering everywhere. We shot quick bursts, then rolled down the grenades. Then yelling, explosion, endless gunfire, and the smell of cordite hanging over the chaos. Combat. Then the inevitable screams. Corman up over here. Corman over here. The rifle cracks started sounding different. They were coming from behind us. We were being overrun. Shoot anything standing up. My heart was pounding. Fear was in my mouth. Word came down the line for one man for each position to shift left. Ten minutes later, shift again. Plug the holes on the far side of the hill. I could hear the M60 machine guns pounding steadily, belt after belt. Dawn was poking up in the east, thank God. Sporadic fire now. Our side was quiet. Eternity was probably just two hours. I ventured a quick look. I saw a leg lying behind a bush. NVA, dead. At first light, they broke, running for cover with a wall of lead raining down on them. Then the napalm fell, so close you could feel the heat on your face. I moved to the top of the hill to see about the other snipers. Bodies lay everywhere, some with ponchos over them, others headed that way, trying to outweigh the medevacs. I came face up with a young white Marine, wide-eyed, holding his stomach, blood oozing out between his fingers. A black Marine, a buddy, I suppose, sat alongside, keeping the flies off him. It was over. We walked off the hill late that afternoon, less than 24 hours later. NVA were scattered everywhere. We later learned that it was an NVA partial regiment outnumbered four to one. No one took any war trophies that day. We just wanted off Mike's Hill. And my last piece is entitled Leaving Vietnam. <clears throat> Everyone had that special date, or at least some idea when, the time you were done with the war, the date you were going home. 13 months short of shore, that was the deal the Marine Corps made with us. I was short, 
12 months, three weeks, and I had my orders. It was June 21st, 1968. The sun was already climbing along with the temperature. The ever-present humidity hung heavy and thick over the valley. I hardly slept the night before, waking several times, checking my watch, grabbing a quick smoke, then drifting back into a semi-sleep, only to wake again in an hour. Today was the last day at Camp J.J. Carroll. The convoy was leaving in a couple of hours, and I was going home. Back to the world. No more red clay of i No more stench of the jungle. No more fear. No more killing. I was getting out with my arms and legs and most of my mind. The longest year of my life was almost over, finally. Last night was uh, sort of a goodbye ritual. My partner had already left, as was the case of other buddies. Now it was my turn. A few of us managed a little jungle juice mixed with orange Kool-Aid. Nasty stuff, but it served its purpose. Handshakes, good luck, promises to keep in touch, all passed around with the jug. My short-timers calendar filled out. I gave away all my prized possessions. The, the things that seemed so important to me was now just stuff. No use back in civilization. I would keep my M14 rifle until Da Nang. Everything else was in my sea bag. Letters, <clears throat> pictures, one set of fatigues, a purple heart, and a year full of memories. Sergeant Andy, walk, Sergeant Andy walked me to the staging area and threw my sea bag up on the deuce and a half. We shook hands and said what was needed, both knowing we would probably never see each other again. As the convoy jerked to a start, I took a last look at the place called the rear. The place where we ate powdered eggs and drank strong coffee. The place where we laughed like the young boys we were. Played endless games of poker and got mortared. The place where you could see North Vietnam from the watchtower. The red mud road snaked down the hill and disappeared into the countryside toward Quang Tree. We rumbled past the last outpost. The dog-faced Marines looked up at, uh, as I was yelling to everyone that I was going home. Some smiled and waved. Others waved with their middle finger. But I didn't care. My orders were for Camp Peldon and the 26 Marines. Back to sunny California and to the girl who had faithfully written to me. I smiled as I thought of her and how we were going to make up for lost time. Quang Tree was a long hour away. I jumped off the convoy and headed to the airstrip. A C-130 would take me south to Da Nang. Half hour later, the big green bird circled and landed. Its roar so loud, I covered my ears. At the far end of the runway, it slowed and headed to the loading area. Just then, I heard the thump and felt the first round of the mortars hit. No! I couldn't believe it. Don't they know I'm going home? Not today. Any other day, but not today. I saw the big green bird lurch forward as the engines revved. The 60-millimeter rounds were getting closer to the plane. It was taking off again, without me. What luck. 
three hours later, my hopes lifted when another C-130 landed and taxied to a stop at the loading zone. This time I jumped on as soon as the ramp came down. Orders check, strapped in, loadmaster yelled, where are you headed? Home, I shouted, I'm finally going home. Thank you very much for listening.